Hello, I am Pastor Richard Wesley Johnson. And I'm Dr. Corey Little-Edwards, and this is the Elusive Dream Podcast. Welcome, welcome to the bonus episode on the voice and the value of the Black Church. Yes, yes, we wanted to give you all an opportunity to hear all that Reverend Dr. David Emanuel Goatley shared with us. And so, as I said during episode four, uh, the Reverend Dr. David Emanuel Goatley is the director of the Office of Black Church Studies at Duke Divinity School, along with many other uh, credentials and accolades. So uh, I hope you all will enjoy this full interview uh, with Dr. Goatley. We are so excited to have um, Reverend Dr. Goatley uh, here with us um, to talk to us today about the Black Church in America. Uh, so thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for the privilege uh, and the invitation. I look forward to, to the conversation today. So you have extensive experience and um, um, knowledge of the Black Church. Talk, tell the audience a little bit about, about that. Uh, well, yes, I'm a product of the Black Church. And uh, the Black Church in the United States has its origin in a crucible of chattel slavery, American evangelicalism, and African traditional religions. And that's, that's where, if you, if you use that kind of metaphor of a crucible um, that uh, the pressures uh, at that intersection mm -hmm. is what has produced the Black church. And uh, there are, are uh, elements of that. So for example, um, most uh, Black churches are evangelical in terms of classical theological evangelicalism. And I say that because that's different than American conservative evangelicalism, which is essentially a political ideology. Oh, um, can you just, just pull that apart for us? Well, classical, classical theological uh, evangelicalism uh, prioritizes the lordship of Jesus. Uh, it prioritizes a relationship that results in a conversion uh, from sin to salvation. Uh, it takes discipleship following Jesus first and foremost uh, above all other things. Um, it takes seriously the Bible uh, as a, a guide to faith and practice. So those are some of the elements of classical theological evangelicalism. American conservative evangelicalism is essentially a political ideology that prioritizes a certain kind of a civil religious loyalty to a certain kind of 
American identity. And that American identity, of course, uh, is born uh, on the backs of enslaved people and standing on the graves of First Nation people who were victims of genocide. And so that is the creation of what the, 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 the United States, what came to be the United States of America, is built on the foundation of genocide and slavery to build its economic uh, vitality. And anywhere you look, there would be no economic vitality uh, in the United States were it not for genocide and uh, the stealing of land and slavery, the commodifying of African bodies uh, for stolen wealth and unpaid labor. Um, and and that, that's the root of American conservative evangelicalism. It's not prioritizing following Jesus. Yeah. Uh, if it was, the fruit of it would be different. And yeah. so uh, in terms of the kind of political ideology that is that pr pr prioritizes a certain uh, cultural way of being. And sometimes, you know, it, some of the language today, it talks about whiteness mm -hmm. and talking about white people uh, necessarily it's talking about a culture that prioritizes um, uh, people who, who are privileged to have white skin, but also have a certain kind of um, orientation, political orientation that some call it conservative. It's not, nowhere else in the world is it called conservative where white people do you know, conservative theology and you know, deny people opportunities for access to education and healthcare. I mean, conservatives in Europe uh, believe that people ought to have uh, you know, access to healthcare and education, for example. Uh, in the United States, it's a different kind of, of, uh, of narrative uh, that, that people buy into even when it's, a, it's not in their own self-interest. So this, this kind of American conservative evangelicalism uh, is a really uh, more contemporary uh, political creation and ideological creation uh, that was um, that is allied uh, with um, building a certain kind of political influence uh, that goes back uh, to the 1970s or so. Uh, but classical evangel classical uh, theological evangel evangelicalism goes back much, much further than that. And it, it's a prioritizing uh, of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Lord of all, even above political parties, above, you know, philosophical ideology, uh, above, you know, a prioritizing of a kind of predatory capitalism, uh, which extracts uh, resources from the masses and contracts it in the hands of a few. Mm. So where do you, where would you say from your perspective, you know, you're a scholar of black church and, and um, American religion, what, and also you're, you're a reverend, you've been a pastor, uh, you served in a mission field with Lot Carey for many, many years. What would you say is uh, the greatest legacy of the black church in America? What do you see? Yeah, well, be before I go there, 
Yeah. Um, I'd like to talk about, I've spoken a little bit about classical theological evangelicalism that mm -hmm. helps to feed uh, the origin of the black church. And those other two, one is African traditional religions. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are some people who allege that, you know, uh, Christians from Europe took Christianity and took Christ to the African continent. What is a more accurate uh, thing is, is that uh, God was already there. And even in the history, uh, in Christian history, uh, there are African thinkers and theologians who are forming the foundations of class classical Orthodox Christianity. And so there was a consciousness. So for example, uh, there, there's a consciousness in much of African traditional religions that hold that there is one God who is a creator of all. Mm -hmm. Now that God was not as, as those of us in the United States have known to note, talk about God as Yahweh of the Hebrew uh, people. It's yeah. a linguistic matter, but uh, there, 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 there is a God who is a creator of all and that all humans are human. That, that kind of anthropology is something that is very common across African traditional religions. That was different from the kind of uh, American religion of the South that uh, hailed that Africans were less than human, uh, which is how you ended up having people uh, as in chattel slavery, mm. which was a distinctive American contribution. There were other forms of slavery, but where slaves you know, could acquire property, they could have families, their families would not be ripped out from under them. But when, when you uh, catalog, catalog uh, people along with plows and animals and et cetera, and their property, then they, they don't uh, merit uh, being treated as humans because humans are created in the, God, in the image of God. Uh, so you have this kind of, um, you had chattel slavery, so you had this, this kind of evangelicalism, and then you have African traditional religions, and then you have um, chattel slavery. And, and that's what gives birth eventually mm -hmm. to the black church. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there is a black church is one of the clearest evidence of the racism uh, that is at the root of the church in the United States. And it continues to bear fruit because if there was not racism, there would have been no reason for a black church. Mm -hmm. uh, the black church uh, was either created by white churches so that black people would not be a part of the white churches so they had their own church or uh, they were born out of protest because mm -hmm. they refused uh, to be denied uh, recognition uh, as children of the living God and disciples of Jesus who is Christ. And so the fact that the black church exists is, you know, is ev evidence 
of racism in the life of the white church and the white experience in the United States. Um, and the fact that we you know, continue to uh, need to be viable uh, to uh, be places of what uh, the, the uh, Afro-Canadian ethicist Peter Paris once called the cultural womb Mm-hmm. Uh, of of the community, that the church was the cultural womb, which gave protection and nurture and 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 birth the kind of uh, capacity to go out into a world that was trying to deny you, and so that is uh, where the black church comes from. And so some of what I appreciate about the black church, now like all all churches, no church is is perfect. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's populated with people, mm-hmm. uh, and even to talk about black church, we can talk about some commonalities. Uh, but it's more probably more accurate to talk about black churches because mm-hmm. of the rich uh, di- variety and diversity of expressions that are related to uh, theological traditions, mm-hmm. uh, kind of sociological development, yeah. just the temperament of people, uh, and how they've come about. But some of what I appreciate most about the Black church is what uh, the theologian J.D. Otis Roberts talked about as he argued that the Black church is an extended family and that the family is a contracted church. And that's a part of his ecclesiology. And so uh, this is a distinctive because there are some uh, of my white colleagues who talk about ecclesiology and churches, where they say that the church is not a family and should not function as one and should not be treated as one. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's born out of a different notion of family when of, of, of the normative language of family being contracted. Mm-hmm. A mom and dad, kids, a household. Mm-hmm. where a more normative understanding of an African-influenced idea of family, the, 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 the default idea is extended. Mm-hmm. That, and so that when you, often when you talk about family in Black churches, it's not limited to a household. Uh, I led, as you mentioned, I led a, a global mission society and I remember, interestingly, uh, following the devastation of Hurricane Katrina mm. in 2005, that uh, some of the people who were there to try to support uh, with emergency aid had difficulty in, in connecting because when, when these aid workers who, who had a certain kind of socialization and, and the, the uh, processes uh, for assistance, uh, assumed a family was one household of one of not more than two generations. Mm-hmm. So it could be parent and child. Mm-hmm. In many of those Louisiana uh, uh, contexts in Mississippi, particularly in Black ones, a family would be three or four generations in one house. Mm-hmm. So it might be a kid, the parent, the grandparent, and on occasionally the great grandparent, and that caused all kind of confusion, you know, with the folks who were trying to administer aid because they were saying this is not a household 
or this is not a family. And so one of the things that, that I appreciate is how the Black church is family for so many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's needed because of the, the tensions that have historically pulled families apart, pulled Black families apart mm-hmm. in the United States. That goes back to the origin of slavery, mm-hmm. children would be taken and sold away from parents or where a husband and wife would be sold to different um, uh, slaveholders. And, and there's been you know, any number of uh, manifestations of that kind of ripping at the fabric of a family across the years in sometimes explicit and sometimes implicit ways. So one of the things I really appreciate about historically black churches is that they're family. You find uncles and aunts and surrogate mothers and surrogate fathers and surrogate grandparents and and, uh, people invest in the lives of the next generation. And so when something happens beautifully to one, it happens to all because we're family. And, And likewise, when something happens tragically to one, it happens to another. Another thing that I value and appreciate about Black churches is historically, Black churches have been a place where people have been able to gather to try to affirm the humanity of all. Mm. And so there is not this people are less than human. Everybody uh, is respected and everybody desires to be respected. And even if people were not members of churches, they would, the churches would connect with them. Uh, times of pain and sickness and death. The church belonged to the people because there's a sense of family that we belong to God and we belong to each other. And even in earlier days when uh, black people would be insulted in white America. So it'd be an adult man, an adult woman who would be called boy and girl um, and, and uh, would be disrespected by children, then they were brother and sister and Mr. and Mrs. in the life of the church because we acknowledged and respected the humanity and the dignity of people despite others trying to do that, uh, the other. Uh, and the, the third thing I'd like to say is that what I appreciate most about the Black church is Jesus is at the center of the Black church. Mm. And uh, not, not a country, not a flag, not a political ideology, but mm. Jesus is at the center of the Black church. The Black church is thoroughly Christological. Now, there are, there are you know, uh, pneumatological emphases, emphases around the Holy Spirit that are present and that are there. But the, the Black church, Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, is at the center of normatively of the Black church experience, which is why we, we you know, it means something when the early church said that Jesus is Lord, which Caesar wasn't. Mm-hmm. We put our lives on it. And for black people, Jesus is Lord, not a political ideology, 
not even a country. Jesus is Lord of all. And that's where our primary alliance is. That's when we're doing, that's when we're at our best. Uh, now, obviously there are times where people, uh, because of sin, the sin internally and influence, you know, they, we sometimes get misaligned, uh, but fundamentally Jesus at the, is at the center. Uh, uh, we have a, we have a con, kind of a where it's kind of old school contemporary gospel song that said Jesus is you're the center of my joy, yeah. and uh, that is would be true normally for black church experiences. Wow, you know today you know we are seeing a lot, a lot of things going on in our country. Um, I would say you know you see many things uh, coming to the surface. It had, had not been at the surface for some decades. Uh, and racial, just, racial injustice is one of those issues, as well as you know, issues of s- systemic uh, racism and white supremacy. What role would you say the black church can play um, when it comes to dealing with issues of racial injustice in this country today? Uh, white supremacy. Systemic racism. What role, what role can the black church play or should it play? Yeah. Well, first I want to say that the black church can help the white church if the white church will let us. Okay. I yeah. want to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if they're let us. So one, one theologically. Now, I, I think that it's, um, I think people underestimate. Uh, Wait, I, gotta, I gotta pause for a second because I can't let that go. I can't let some go. You say okay. if they let us. Why, if the white church let us, what's going on with that? Why isn't the white church, from your perspective, letting the black church help or lead or guide or whatever, however you would say it? Oh, because I think that implicitly or explicitly, many of our white siblings, and I do want to, I want to emphasize that, you know, we're siblings, um, which is why I, I try to speak the truth lovingly. Amen. Uh, yeah. But many, many, many of my our siblings don't respect black people enough mm. to learn from us. Yeah, uh, there are uh, many of them. Uh, you know, will be amused by us or entertained by us. So they want to hear black people sing, mm-hmm. or maybe on occasion hear uh, an outwardly emotive. Uh, creative black preacher preach, mm-hmm. uh, but in terms of come come and be a part of something that we are leading, so yeah. that you can learn from us. Don't assume uh, that black people have nothing to teach, and to learn something takes time. You don't learn something, you know, in three days. It takes time to learn it. And so that's what I mean that, you know, most black churches are hospitable Mm -hmm. and welcome everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, I'm I'm amused when people talk about, you know, kind of multicultural churches that are led by white folks because, you know, black folks have been multicultural a long time. Uh, The percentage of it changes, (laughs) but... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we are welcoming, mm-hmm. uh, we are hospitable, uh, and there have been a number, you know, of white folks 
who their white churches have given up on them. And they found themselves in a black church who literally loved them back to life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because that's that's a part of what we'll do. So my thing is that if if you know if if our white siblings uh, can kind of uh, detach themselves from the idea that white folks always have to be leading and making decisions yeah. and come alongside or get behind sometimes. Uh, then, then uh, there many of them be surprised of how much they'll learn uh, and uh, how much they'll benefit uh, and how much they'll be enriched. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what do you say when it comes to issues of racial injustice in this country? What do you think the white churches have to learn? The white church leaders have to learn. What can they learn from the black church today? Yeah. Well. Some of the uh, important things would include uh, a black Christian anthropology mm-hmm. holds that all people are created in the image of God, mm-hmm. period. And does sin mar that? Sure. But can sin do away with it? No. And black Christian anthropology holds that all people are fully human, Mm -hmm. created in the image of God, Mm -hmm. and are deserving the full respect and dignity afforded anyone else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That kind of anthropology will help our white siblings. And one way, so you you say, well, how, how, how might that play out? One way it plays out is you do not um, cooperate with uh, and support behavior practices or policies that that make people vulnerable mm-hmm. and put people in danger, mm-hmm. and that you you ensure that resources are available so that people can at least be safe and in a position to flourish. You do not embrace a concept where it's about always about gathering mm-hmm. and and consuming but what you do is you you're, you're committed uh, to a, a shared prosperity so that none go without mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that is grounded I believe in a Christian anthropology that says all people are created in the image of God the second thing, a sec, a, another thing, is that uh, there's an idea of neighborliness mm-hmm. that is embedded in Black Christian culture. Mm-hmm. That if our white siblings will embrace that, it will help them to be anti-racist. Yeah. So one is your, your anthropology. Two is a commitment to, to just being neighborly. Uh, and I mean, we could, uh, if you talk, if, if you go to the Old Testament, uh, 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 the Hebrew people are instructed uh, to make provisions for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, mm-hmm. the most vulnerable people that they are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if you're a stranger, it means you're not a part of that, you know, a system of power. 
of, of belonging and of inheritance. Uh, Jesus talks about, you know, who, you know, when he's asked who is your neighbor, he tells a story about the Samaritan who stops to care for uh, the person who was beaten and injured and left for dead. Mm -hmm. if, our, if our white Christian siblings embrace the concept of neighborliness, then that would prevent them from allowing people who have been beaten and injured and left for dead mm -hmm. To be to, to just walk by and to say, well, they shouldn't have been on the road that time of night. Uh -oh. You know, to further victimize the victim, whoever they are. Yeah. I think those would be two places where black churches, where white white churches, if they embrace that kind of idea of black um, Christian theology of uh, anthropology and of neighborliness. Mm -hmm. Those are two things that would help them to be more just, because if you hold to a, the kind of Christian anthropology uh, that is a part of classical Christian evangelicalism, and that I've just uh, described a bit, mm -hmm. you hold to neighborliness, which is part of classical theological evangelicalism. If you hold to those two, you stand against racism. Mm -hmm. Because part of, and I mean, you're a sociologist, so you could do this better than me, but uh, part of the assumption of racism, mm -hmm. an assumption of the inherent superiority of one race and the inherent inferiority of another race. Mm -hmm. We all know that that's a social construction. There's nothing biological about that. There's nothing spiritual about that. Mm -hmm. It's all a social construction that enables a certain kind of exploitation. Yeah. of wealth is a tool to extract wealth from the masses and concentrate in the hand of the elite few. Mm -hmm. And if you hold that everybody is human and worthy of honor and provision and protection and respect. If you hold to a commitment of neighborliness so that if somebody is beaten and wounded and left for dead, you engage them for their care and their support and their well-being. If you just do those, that, that makes you an enemy of racism. Mm -hmm. Racism assumes an inherent inferiority of a group of people, just a whole group of people because of the classification, because of their skin color. How do you say a whole group of people is good and a whole group of people is bad? That's insane. Yeah. Just mm -hmm. insane. And anybody who is white knows you can't assume that all white people are good. I mean, they know that better than I do. <laughs> so so you, you can't just do a whole group of people, yeah. but a whole group of people are bad, a whole group of people are superior, a whole group of people are inferior. If, if you hold just to those two tenets that are core in black church life, that will make you an enemy of racism and an advocate of justice so that all have enough. None have too much, none have too little, but it can be a household that functions well.
I, I like all that, but I could hear what I could hear. I could hear what some people might be saying. I can imagine people would say, we do all that. We are neighborly. We do extend. Look at all the ministries we have. Look at how much we, we give. We give. Look at how we serve. Um, and hey, you know, so how do you, how do you respond to that? Put some, help us understand this a little bit. Well, um, I think, first of all, you know, when people talk about how much they give, another question is how much do you keep? Mm -hmm. and you know I'm generous so I give 10% away well that means you're keeping 90 so I'm you know I, I, I'm always interested in interrogating this look how much we give away yeah. uh, you know if you say look we gave a million but if you kept nine I mean you know the numbers are not that impressive so part of it has to do with the kind of practices that we in what way do you as a Christian person demonstrate that you love everybody? Mm -hmm. In what way do you as a human being, where are your friendships mm -hmm. so that you, you, you befriend somebody who, let, so let's, let's talk about the black white binary now. Yeah. It worked for black folks, brown folks, indigenous folks, but let's just use a black white binary for, for our purposes. So if you are white and privileged, in what way or places are you engaging in a long-term relationship with somebody who is black and poor or struggling uh, so that you can be uh, neighborly and affirm their humanity in your practice and in the policies that you support? Mm -hmm. So how can you support policies that uh, disinvest in public education. Mm -hmm. Knowing that, and, and that's not just people, most white folks need public education. Mm -hmm. Not just that, but I'm saying that it targets particularly, and how do you run away from the history of so many Christian academies, for example, all over the country, that were organized by their own admission so that their children wouldn't have to go to school with black kids. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's your practice and your policy of intentionally engaging for the cause of justice. So it's not enough to say, well, I don't hurt anybody. I ain't bothering anybody. That's mm -hmm. not enough. The question is not, it, it has to go beyond how you are uh, not in what you're not doing, but to, but to also what are you doing mm -hmm. to advance the cause of justice? So for example, it, it's documented about how race, racism and the pattern and history of racism starts, you know, in terms of in the delivery room mm -hmm. where, where there's 13 times the number of black women who die in childbirth than white women. Mm -hmm where there are disproportionate numbers of black kids who are suspended and expelled from schools. Mm -hmm. so let us say you're a church. How do you engage with the school system to figure out how do we uh, not, how, how do we get beyond this racial uh, disproportion of suspending and expelling black kids? Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Why? I mean, you can do that if you if you are in. I mean, you've got school teachers, you got principals, you got lawyers, you got law enforcement, you got social workers, mm -hmm. congregations. In where as a congregation, so I'm talking to some of my white congregation siblings. Mm -hmm. In where are you looking for places of disempowerment? Mm and engaging alongside the folks who are disempowered. Mm -hmm. where, are you, where are you aiming to make things more just in terms of that or, or other ways of advocacy? Yeah. How are you advocating to make sure that there are provisions available for those who are vulnerable because of race? Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, I don't, I mean, if you just follow, if you, there, these are lines that you can follow. Now, there are some people who will argue, well, you know, my, my relatives had to work hard and, and uh, they saved. And, and if everybody would work hard and save, you know, they all could advance. That's a total denial of the reality of stolen labor. Mm. Mm. of time and even today where you can document when, when you get to the books where black people are paid less money than white people with the same education and the same experience and the same deliverables yeah and it's a systemic pattern so mm. my question to my uh, friends who say we give money away and all that stuff is where are you aiming for places of disempowerment mm. and where are you aiming for places of injustice so that you could come alongside. There's a, a, an a, a analogy of, let's say that uh, you teach somebody how to fish and you buy the person, you know, the fishing gear and all of that. So somebody, you know, people say, teach a person to fish and they'll, you know, eat for a lifetime, give them a fish, they'll eat one meal, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so suppose, so, okay, suppose you teach somebody to fish, but then, the place that they're allowed to fish is downstream from the factory that's pumping toxins in the water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So any fish that live are deformed and poisoned. Mm -hmm. so, the, so the question is, it's not enough then that you have taught somebody to fish. You've got to go upstream to where people are poisoning the stream where the folks are trying to fish downstream and to challenge that and to write that because you can bet your bottom dollar they all fishing upstream mm -hmm. before before yeah, they're not getting they their fish down there they ain't coming down there no they ain't coming down there so so you know there are times where people say well you know i i'm i don't bother anybody I, i'm not hurting anybody and mm -hmm. I, 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 you know i give a few dollars away my question is, you got influence. Yeah. You got power. The Lord has given you influence. The Lord has given you power. Mm -hmm. The Lord has given you privilege. So how do you use your possessions and your power and your privilege to aim for places of racial disempowerment and to aim for places of racial injustice to be advocates? Uh, when you start, and you don't have to do it all, do something. Yeah. But do it with intentionality and focus. Uh, and so I don't, you know, I, it, it, we need to do acts of compassion 
and acts of charity. We need to do that and mm -hmm. I celebrate that. But we need to go beyond charity and beyond compassion to empowerment and to advocacy. Mm -hmm. Help make this world a better place uh, for people who, who suffer because of racial injustice. Yeah, I mean, you're, what you're getting at is, you know, moving from a focus on individual acts to help individual people or a few individual people to addressing systemic issues and using your power to address systemic inequality, racial inequality and injustice. And until we deal with that, you know, you can, you can kind of still hang on to your money, you know, cause then, you know, if you're only dealing with individual stuff and you're not dealing with the system then you can hang on to your money and give it out as you want. But it's the, the thing is when you deal with the system then you got to share a little bit. But I also want to encourage, I want to encourage people to both deal with the systemic issues, mm -hmm. disempowerment and injustice, yeah. and to do personal habits. Mm. So for example, do you spend your money with black people for goods and services? Mm -hmm. And do you do that? And uh, do you in terms of where you are mentoring, I mean, if you're in a relationship of mentoring, are you, do you have black people in your circle for mentoring? So do you, just like you're gonna invest in mentoring young white kids, are you investing in mentoring young black kids? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you are a, um, a business owner and you have to have partners, or you have to outsource stuff, do you, are you trying to outsource to black owned businesses and entrepreneurs, just like you're outsourcing to white ones. Mm. So I, so we do, we have to work on those systemic issues. Mm -hmm. but sometimes people say, well, you know, I'm gonna vote and I'm gonna sign a petition and I'm gonna do that. And I'm gonna click, you know, on the web, but your practices and your habits, so where you spend your money. Yeah. Is all is all in white communities, and you don't spend it in black communities. You don't spend it with black providers of goods and services, and you don't mentor folks. Mm -hmm. And just personally, so let me keep talking about personally. You don't read black authors mm. to to enrich your awareness. Uh, you don't you don't join black. Well, let me let me use it in a positive language. You should read black authors, read black novelists, read black cultural critics, read black fiction, read black theology to expose yourself to more a wider uh, um, offering of insights and don't just fall for the stereotypes that make buffoonery and entertainment out mm -hmm. of black folks. Yeah. Like, I mean, all stereotypes, you take a seed of something and then you distort it uh, uh, for whatever message you're trying to do. But there, there are some individual behavior things. What Black organizations that are working for justice will you join? Mm -hmm. Join, And I don't mean join a white one that's working for justice. I mean join a Black one or a Black-led one yeah. that's working for justice so that you and and don't insist if you're white that you know you have to be acknowledged by the president or the chairman of it just join it along with everybody else 
because whoever the leaders are, they got work to do rather than changing their agenda to help socialize you and school you and bring you up. Let another member that you sit beside in the meetings do that. Yes, yeah. So th those are some, those are just some examples of some practical things that people can do on a personal level. And this business of where you spend your money is real. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, it's how, how often does money turn in the community? Or say somebody is a real estate investor mm -hmm. and you're investing uh, in businesses. What part of your portfolio are you investing in black communities that have been uh, dis they have suffered disinvestment by design. Mm -hmm. It's not accidental. It's by design. There's history of public policy, running expressways right through the middle of black communities to break them in half and make them more vulnerable to gentrification. Mm -hmm. uh, so what about your banking? Do you do some banking in black banks? Because black banks do community banking and, and prioritize loans in communities. So there are personal behavioral things that we can do to behave more just in practice. And we can participate in, in the large policy shifts as well, all of them that can move us toward being more just. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. I, I can't let something go that you brought up that I've been sitting on. And I thought it was a good one because you didn't say it directly, but you talked about uh, the the, the uh, Good Samaritan, and I I couldn't help but start thinking about what we're dealing with right now with Black Lives Matter and people's response to Black Lives Matter. And I don't know if that's where you were going, but that's the connection that I made in my head. Can you uh, speak to that a little bit um, and how you're seeing that? How you're seeing how the church broadly is responding to it, uh, and then how the uh, black church is or ought to be or what it can do as it relates to that? Well, like all movements, you have diversity of engagement and diversity of, of engagement of, of uh, substance and of strategy. And uh, there, there are uh, some who are arguing that the leaders of the Black Lives Matter expressions because it's not one organization. Uh, and there's some who are trying to find some expression and uh, uh, normalize it and demonize it. And so I wanna say that uh, the, there are multiple expressions. At the heart of it is that black lives matter and therefore they should not be vulnerable uh, to uh, aggression that results in their death by law enforcement or anybody else in power. Or anybody else in that matter. George Zimmerman was not a law. Of yeah, law. yeah, or anybody else, right, yeah. uh, who, who has power and mm -hmm. weapons, so he had power. <laughs> um, yes. So that, that includes a state sanction and it includes vigilantes and it includes them all. So Black Lives Matter and the reason that a period belongs there is because the history of this country with, uh, with a significant number of white people uh, explicitly 
or implicitly or by the policies mm -hmm. established by white politicians. Mm -hmm. the, the, the weight of history in this country is that black lives have not mattered, which is why we had slavery and lynching and redlining and discrimination and mm -hmm. et cetera. Yeah. And disproportionate sentencing uh, and all, so, so black lives matter period. And the reason we have to say that is because it stands over against the history, historic trajection mm -hmm. of the that says black lives do not matter. Yeah. So it, it's, just, it's saying take, take a side. So what we need, so there are some black churches mm -hmm. and some white churches that have been supportive Mm -hmm. of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's not one organization, it's a movement. Mm -hmm. Advancing the reality and, and the truth that Black Lives Matter, period. <laughs> we have to say that because the history of this country has said Black lives do not matter. That's, so right. that's why we have to say it. Sometimes people say, well, all lives matter. Well, that is true, but all lives have not been uh, sought to be extinguished because of their ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And so th this is a statement over and against uh, a, a statement of, of danger and violence uh, and effort to destroy. Yeah. Some churches have been supportive. Uh, I have not heard, uh, I'm sure one exists somewhere, but I, I don't know of the black church that has been an opponent of the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. Most black churches are not movement entities. Mm -hmm. So most of them are not out on the front line, mm -hmm. but most are supportive explicitly or implicitly in some ways that they can do. Mm -hmm. There are some white churches and some white people and some white Christian people, or who call themselves Christian, who, who try to demonize the black church lives movement as if it, as if, uh, it is uh, destructive. Mm. The only thing that the movement is trying to destroy is anti-black racism. Mm -hmm. So if, you, if you're saying they are disruptive, and destructive, if you're saying they're disruptive and destructive to white supremacy mm -hmm. and to anti-black racism, if that's what your allegation is, I think all of them would say, well, sure, we'll, we'll accept that because uh, white supremacy is death dealing, results mm -hmm. in death. Yeah. And racism, anti-black racism results in death in poverty and poverty is an accelerant to a death sentence mm -hmm. if that's what they're alleging sure i mean i think i think uh, all of us who support the black lives movement would say so yeah uh, but to take one element or one expression and demonize it is disingenuous it's dishonest and no christian ought to do that yeah. and also where people accuse um you know, uh, protesters 
of um, breaking up things and burning up things, that is that, first of all, it's a small slice of all of these demonstrations. These demonstrations are, if you were grading them, you'd give them an A mm -hmm. for, it, it's, it's way up in the 90s, a good solid A yeah. uh, for nonviolent direct action. Mm -hmm. You do have a sliver over on the side of, of people who have been disruptive to, to property. Mm -hmm. I have two responses to that. First of all, some of that is instigated by outsiders and some of the outside, and it's been documented, some of the outsiders are financed by or actually white folks who are trying to be disruptive to the peaceful movement. Mm -hmm. Documented. Second, there are some people who are so frustrated because they've been boxed in on every side. And in the case of some people, if, they, if their experience is, if I'm walking down the street, minding my own business and mm -hmm. I'm back, I have a higher probability, 2.2% higher probability of being killed by law enforcement, mm -hmm. just minding my own business. Yeah. That kind of, of constant, pressure can prompt people to lash out. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's white knows that there are some white people who have experienced so much economic pressure in the last 15 years that mm -hmm. even some of them have acted out in ways that have been detrimental and destructive physically and to their own issues out of frustration. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think the Black Lives Movement uh, expressions are a sign of the brooding of the spirit of the Lord mm. over the deep chaos of mm. racism. Yeah. And that the spirit of the Lord is, is, is stirring up a spirit of righteousness and justice. Yeah. And there are many, one of the exciting things about these recent movements mm -hmm. uh, that Black Lives Matter is a part of, but they don't own it, mm -hmm. is how interracial and intergenerational mm -hmm. these movements are. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to a colleague of mine in Atlanta uh, who works in a corporate uh, office in, in downtown he came out the door one day when there was movement and the whole movement was white Roman Catholics marching for Black Lives Matter. Yeah. That was that day. Yeah. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. I've been so proud of the daily demonstrators there up, up around, as we record today, about 160 days. Mm. Daily demonstration insisting on accountability for the police murder of Breonna Taylor yeah. in her apartment. Yeah. There are times where there have been white elderly senior citizens who have camped out in lawn chairs because they couldn't march, mm -hmm. but get out there in lawn chairs to demonstrate for justice. This mm -hmm. is an unprecedented coalition. Yeah. 
yeah. of what uh, Dr. William Barber calls fusion politics, mm -hmm. where you have old and young and white and black is across spectrums, conservatives and progressives, because mm -hmm. it's a concern about morality yeah. and justice. And that ought to be fruit of the Christian witness. Yeah. And uh, if we're not if we're not trying to make this world just in our practice and our politics, then we're not bearing fruit worthy of the kingdom. Mm. That's good. That's good. I have one more for you. You know this this podcast is really a, the elusive dream is about well how multiracial churches are faring in this country. Uh, we know recently from a recent study that multiracial churches are growing and in proportion uh, in the United States. And in fact, we are seeing a greater proportion of multiracial churches not only being attended um, by Black people, but being headed by Black people. 16% of them are headed by Black people. What are your thoughts on all this? Well, I think that we need a diverse expression of congregational life uh, to meet the diverse uh, expressions of people's spiritual lives uh, and uh, where they're situated. Um, I, I'm not in uh, a, I, I don't cheer for or cheer against. <laughs> Uh, churches based on their uh, ethnic composition. Yeah. I th that I think, though, that uh, it's 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 letting people off the hook to say that a church is diverse or inclusive because it is multiracial. Mm -hmm. Because you have to factor in social economics as well. Yeah, and so. If and you know I, I, my, I'm not I'm not on the front line of scholarship as you are, but I got I've got some uh, armchair sociology I've done and and uh, armchair watching that uh, a, a a disproportionate number of the multi-racial uh, churches I've seen seem to orient themselves uh, to function comfortably in a certain kind of uh, middle-class, upward middle-class social, social economic way of seeing the world, mm -hmm. uh, which is not inclusive of the people who are the most vulnerable, mm. who are black, and brown and indigenous and women and young. <laughs> to say multiracial, where you know everybody you know can afford to live in the same neighborhood, that that's that's as a that's as American as it as you come. Mm. I don't know what's Christian about that. Yeah. Because in this country. Most of our lives are organized around social economics mm. in terms of where you live or where you eat, <laughs> yeah. where, 
is class. Yeah. Class conscious. Mm. The roots. I mean, you, you know, you had to be a property owner to vote, in, you know, in the beginning of the country. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm not all that impressed by a multiracial congregation because people, you know, have different skin tones, but they all function with the same kind of uh, social economic uh, um, mindset mm-hmm. where Christianity is mostly privatized. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's kind of, you know, God bless, you know, us four, maybe a few more, but, you know, we, we, we're, we're committed yeah. to a certain kind of socioeconomic way of being, which yeah. is kind of a civil religion in the United States that mm-hmm. has a gloss of respectability, but deep down it's all about the money. Mm. And talk about the money personal or even for the churches. Well, churches are made up of people. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And so the church is not going to function in a way different yeah. than the, the philosophical and personal and spiritual priorities of the people. Mm-hmm. So if, if you are primarily interested in a privatization of faith, then it's going to manifest. It don't matter what your racial, ethnic background mm-hmm. is. It don't matter. Mm-hmm. One of the things about Black church life is it's personal, but not private. Okay, make the distinction. When it's, when it's personal, it also is communal. Mm. So it, you don't you you are you are who you are, but you are who you are connected to others uh, mm-hmm. around you as well. Yeah, you're private. You can put up your privacy fence, and I built one once. You know, I, I once lived in a house uh, and uh, a tree had broken down the privacy fence in the back when we had moved in. And mm-hmm. my neighbor behind me and I literally built that part of the privacy fence. We never saw each other or spoke to each other again. Mm-hmm. We had our yard and our family enjoyed our yard. It was private. Yeah. And that's what a lot of kind of um, uh, American evangelical stuff is. It's private. Yeah. yeah. Black church theology is personal, which means I have to make a decision to follow Jesus, but all of my life has consequences for everybody else and everybody else's life has consequences. So it's personal, it's also communal. Yeah. Where private separates itself to kind of an individual household. And so you can prioritize gathering Mm. and de-emphasize scattering. When mm-hmm. you really have a family that you love, you share. Yeah. When it's not your family, it's easier for you to withhold. Yeah. And so just as I talked about earlier, that essential to the classical Black church experience is the church is a family and the family is a church. Mm-hmm. And that Black churches are part of and belong to community yeah and so when you are part when you see family in a um, robust definition Mm -hmm. rather than a narrow definition then you share with your family so that none go without who is who is going to love a family member and let that family member go without 
Mm. That is. And so if we can if we can develop the kind of sensitivity in our churches and commitment with anthropology and neighborliness and and that being the fruit of our spirituality, because we follow Jesus, because Jesus is right at the center, then we'll learn uh, to share so that none go without. And that's not just our money. Yeah. That's that's all of our being. Mm. So that we share whatever we have so that none go without. And uh, so I, I, I uh, think that multicultural, multiracial, multicultural churches are fine. Uh, but I think until churches are able to cross the social economic and class issue, yeah. then I'm willing to start, you know, having a, a fireworks show to celebrate. Uh, but until then, I think we still have much, much more work to do. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much, Dr. Goodley, for spending time with me. Any last things you want to, any last thoughts you'd like to share? Well, I, I do want to say thank you for the privilege of having this uh, conversation. Uh, I thank you for inviting uh, listeners uh, to hear voices and to give thought to voices. Uh, I do want to say, um, because we, you know, our country is struggling uh, in more uh, prominent expressions uh, of racism. Mm -hmm. I don't know that racism is more prominent. It's just we see it now yeah. because of social media and et cetera. Uh, and so there are some who are having an awakening. And some are talking about awakening. Some are talking about reckoning. I think it's premature. Uh, to use either of those words, but we are having to grapple with it. And I had uh, one of my white uh, uh, pastoral and academic colleagues ask me, uh, "Was I hope? Did I have hope uh, for for about racism, and particularly in the life of the church?" And I said, "Without batting an eye, yes, because I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead." Uh, anything short of resurrection power is insufficient to tackle racism. Mm. Uh, racism is deep, racism is distorted, and racism is sin. Yeah. And why? And racism is uh, a, a product of the Enlightenment project. And so you can't you can't rely exclusively on the tools of the enlightenment to mm -hmm. construct this beast. Yeah. Uh, but I believe that if we put Jesus at the center of the church, mm -hmm. and if we will let, let our orientation of Jesus, the closer we get to Jesus, the closer we get to each other. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Jesus is not fighting at people and cussing at people, and, you know, insulting people and denying people opportunities to have life. Yeah. The closer we get to Jesus, the closer we'll get to being able to work together for racism. So I, 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 my hope is not, is not in the tools of the enlightenment. I think you gotta use them, but my hope is in the power of 
of God who raised Jesus from the dead. And for that reason, I still have hope that the church can be more of what God dreams that it can be. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that interview with uh, Reverend Dr. David Emanuel Goatley. There was just so much there that he had to share with me during our time together. And we really wanted to give our listeners the opportunity to learn from that. Uh, Isn't that right, Pastor Rich? That's absolutely right. And one of the feedback that I've gotten from uh, listeners in this podcast is that they're using it for group discussions. Uh, Some people are using it for personal study. Mm -hmm. And some folks are even actually incorporating it into existing curriculum on uh, multiracial church, uh, addressing white supremacy, et cetera, et cetera. So we hope this podcast has been so helpful for all of our listeners in your growth, in your knowledge, and in your understanding of what it means to receive and attain this elusive dream. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes, yes. So, uh, Pastor Rich, where can people find you if they wanted to follow you? Well, they can find me on the Twitter at (laughs) Richard Wesley and on the gram at Rich Johnson Online. And where can people find you? Well, people can find me on Twitter and Facebook as well as Instagram. And that is with Corey Little Edwards. That's spelled K-O-R-I-E. And so we thank you all for your uh, time and listening in. And Pastor Rich, how do we want to leave our listeners? Well, we want to leave them today with this thought that the dream is elusive, but it is attainable. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) All right, y'all. 